Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals and entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups or conferences, trade shows, and other events, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. We want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. This podcast is sponsored by EventsFrame. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. Make the switch from Eventbrite today to our amazing ticketing and registration system with no ticket fees. Most ticketing systems charge you a minimum of 3% of the ticket price, but we just have a flat, low fee with no ticket fees and no restrictions. There's literally no system out there that is cheaper than EventsFrame. It's also super easy to use and you can embed your tickets in your website or you can use our own website builder, which is really simple. We have amazing options to apply all kinds of discounts on all the features you'd expect from a much more expensive system like QR code check-in. Go to eventsframe.com, that's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com for a free, no-risk, one-month trial. Hi there, Dan here. I just want to jump in quickly to say uh, it's now 27th of June and I'm about to head off for two weeks of vacation. Uh, we're really lucky enough to have a place in the Austrian Alps. I think I've mentioned it before, which we, we got together with another family. So I spend a lot of time down there in the winter and, and we like to go in the summer to do some hiking and a bit of mountaineering this time as well, which, which should be exciting. I'm in training to climb Mount Rainier in Washington in August. So this week and next week, we're re-releasing a couple of really cool episodes from the end of last year, which a lot of people haven't heard because our kind of listenership grew a lot from sort of February, March, April onwards in 2019. And the first one is with an interview with a guy called Luke Reed. Luke's in the UK and he's a full-time event organizer. He founded a company called Tech Circus that runs meetups and conferences in the UK in the tech area focused on things like UX design. But what's super interesting about Luke is that he started off running meetups and then grew his meetups to be a conference. And this is something I get asked about all the time. So I think you're all going to get a huge amount of value out of it, learning how, you know, because a lot of you are organizing meetups, but then you're thinking, how do I take this to the next level and actually make it a big conference? So that's what we talk about with Luke. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I look forward to talk again soon. Hi and welcome to the events podcast. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Luke Reed. Luke's in the, the UK and runs a company called Tech Circus and he runs uh, a bunch of tech related conferences and summits including the UX uh, Live conference and the FinTech Design Summit. So hi Luke and welcome to the podcast. Well done, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So I'm, we're recording this on um, 8th of January, the start of the year. Um, I'm, I'm in Prague. I don't know if I mentioned that before. I've got, I have an office here and ba- based here. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what whereabouts in London are you? We're based uh, in Aldgate, which is it's really close to Shoreditch in the heart of the, all the tech scene in London. Cool. And do you, uh, do you have an office there or do you, do you work remotely or in a co-working space? Or how do you organize things? We work in a co-working space. We work with WeWork. Um, it's really good for us because we host quite a lot of our events here. Um, so it's, it serves as a double purpose for us as, uh, as we grow. That's interesting. WeWork's coming to Prague now. They've just got a huge space here and they're just about to open. And uh, I've, I've used it in San Francisco, New York. So um, I, I like it, you know. I mean, I guess uh, you, you can have private offices there as well, can't you, I think, as well as the, the open space? That's right. Yeah, we've got our own private office. Um, we use the open space for events and we also have meeting rooms like the one I'm sitting in there. 
now to, to do this uh, podcast. Cool. Well, uh, welcome to the podcast, Luke. So first of all, I want to just have a bit a look at your background because I'm guessing, so you finished university, I'm guessing in about 2012, which would make you about late 20s. Is that right? Uh, I, I went to university a bit uh, later in life, if you like. So um, I'm mid 30s. Okay. Well, I was going to give you credit. I was like, how have you done all this by the time you're 28? I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so I mean, can we just talk about how you got started? It looks like you did a few entrepreneurial things while you were still at university. That's right. Yeah. So it, it started whilst I was at university. Um, I didn't really have enough money to uh, pay for my my accommodation and my food. Uh, I was one of the unlucky middle class guys that doesn't get any loans and also didn't get any support from his parents. So um, I had to uh, find ways myself of making money. And I started off by selling tickets for nightclubs in, in Lancaster University. It was, a, it was a pound a ticket that I got every time I sold a ticket. So I started thinking of new ways to, to sell tickets to mass students. Some of the ways that I, I, I remember doing it was bribing the, the football teams and the hockey teams and the breakdancing club and uh, telling the, the, the guys that were, that were running it, to, if, if they come down to the event, I'll give them some free drinks and they brought the whole team down. And it started from there. So started a few businesses selling tickets and then it, it led on to creating nightclub nights in Lancaster because I had a, a very big ticket network. Before long, I was making more money than anyone else on the campus and running several club nights and uh, making yeah really good money and that's where that's where i started dabbling with events it's interesting like i um i only had one student loan and that was a really small one and that was one year like, I, I basically had nothing and i for me it's crazy like i mean it's different did you have like did you have fees when you were at university or was it was it free yeah it, i had uh fees and i had uh, as i said i started university a bit later so it was just yeah. really unfortunate because i um my my parents um, hadn't lived with them for eight years you know we've gone very well but hadn't lived with them for years and uh they still you know made me pay the, the fees and the tuition and all that stuff so um it, it got no support whatsoever i had enough money just about to cover my rent so i had to find a job really to to support myself it's funny i, I mean when i went there was no fees and still a lot of people I know got hugely into debt and I, I just had jobs the whole time like I did loads of stuff I worked in I worked on door in the club I worked in barman I just delivered pizza I was in the navy unit I did I did a whole lot of things and you know I think a lot of people are just lazy to be honest like it's I hate to say this but like you don't need to get as in debt as most people do at university notice well that's exactly it and um for me I, I made a really decent amount of money I was making at least uh, about a thousand pound a week on on some of the weeks so uh, I may probably made more money when I was at university than I did when I left university. Um, yeah. I don't think there's ever been such a time in my life where I've had so much disposable income. And it was great. We charged £3 per ticket, you know, 500 people rocking up, £1,500, take away a few of the costs. And, you know, um, it, it, we're making serious, serious money and, uh, and, and living a good life for it. Um, but it, it did start off with half graft. I had to go to pretty rubbish nightclub nights and sell tickets for a pound each um and you know selling 15 20 pounds of the tickets was enough to to get my food for the week or whatever cool um and, and what what was the first thing you did after university i saw you did a you did you did some uh, pub crawls and things as well at university i see uh, that was just after university so yeah. i unfortunately finished university in the recession i had a degree in marketing and uh, it was a top university I went to as well. So I thought I'd be all lined up and like most students, you know, left university and uh, got into the real world. And um, 
I uh, I had to pick up the, the only job that I could get, which was uh, a sales job working for uh, an, an account sales company. Uh, so doing like accountancy product sales. Right. Uh, couldn't think of anything much more dry and boring to do, you know, if if, if possible, uh, if I tried. But it's, it was a great learning curve. It, it sort of, you know, gave me a bit of sales experience. Um, and that, that's when I started up the, the pub crawls because I was still reminiscent of my university days thinking, oh, I was making so much money doing these club nights. I've left now, graduated, got a job. Uh, doing something I don't particularly like that much, but it's paying the bills. And I thought, how can I make some extra money? So I started up a pub crawl business, and uh, we we charged people ten pounds to go on a pub crawl, and we uh, negotiated with all the bars uh, free shots. So we'd say, you know, bring fifty to hundred people to your bar, and you have to give them a free shot. And so the guys got five free shots, and we did a deal with a nightclub to get them for free. For £10, they got five free shots, a pub crawl, and free entrance to a nightclub that cost £10 normally. Um, so it was a, a nice side income, and it meant that I could, uh, as I said, it was a recession. So I was on real minimum money and quite bad commission at the time. There was no jobs for graduates. There was no graduates in my company. Um, it was all experienced salespeople. I was very lucky to get through the doors. And... Um, yeah, yeah, grafting and, and phoning people up and selling stuff cold for uh, a, a year or so. Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, like selling experience is the best. Like, you know, I got some some early sales experience, and even though I generally hated it, it is still any sales experience you can get. Like, especially like old school telesales, or I've never done it, but I've got friends that have done door to door sales and these kind of old school things. Even though it's like a horrible thing to do, like it's great for learning sales and learning any business stuff because you just get really good at dealing with rejection and overcoming objections yeah absolutely it's uh i think it's a good foundation and it, it teaches you a work ethic that you know you've got to work really hard you've got to knock as as many doors as possible in order to to get somewhere and um it's it's certainly yeah it's a painful experience uh, going through cold calling and boning hundreds of people per day uh, it does really teach you how to how to make business from nothing, how to make money from nothing, really. That's funny. Well, I think I think I'd rather do that than your other job because I know some people in Prague that do these pub calls, and I'm like, that just looks like hell. I mean, I'm sure it'd be fun for a week, but it's just you see these guys in Prague, and it's just awful. Like, I would hate to have to deal with them. It, it <laughs> I really, really would hate it. Yeah, yeah. It was, to be honest, it wasn't as glamorous as it sounds. Um, oh, it doesn't sound glamorous, trust me. <laughs> yeah, people in pub crawls after working for a full week and not having a weekend and then having to go out with them until late. It's, it's exhausting dealing with drunk people all the time. It did make good money again. You know, it, we were doing 500 quid a night on £1,000 a weekend. So it was a nice little business, but it was a means to an end, really. I know the guy in Prague has ended up starting his own bar. He was doing that well. He just figured out that he might as well funnel them all into his place at the end of the night. After So he did a bunch of these pub calls. Now he just has his own pub, and that's where they end up. Yeah, there's definitely some money in it. Um, you know, it, it is B2C, and it's uh, essentially you're, you're trying to take money of the ordinary working man. But um, there, there is money in it. And uh, I like the concept of, again, creating something from nothing. We didn't have a product. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any investment. And we just went round to all the local hostels, knocking on the doors, saying the pub calls on a few makeshift posters and uh, giving some commission to the guys on the reception at the hostels in Manchester. Um, and, yeah, it worked well. It was the, the only pub call there was up there. 
for for tourists and it 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 was a good time for me because I was essentially going out having my social life with people on the pub crawl uh going out out you know and having fun when I was young and getting paid for it at the same time as two birds with one stone if you like yeah yeah sure well and so what was next you got into recruitment by the looks of it Yes, yeah, so I got a lucky break. Um, after being in the sales company, I worked for a small niche recruitment company in Manchester. They're fairly unknown, to be honest, but they, they dealt with regulatory risk in the recession. It was a quite a, a big thing that all the banks had to be uh, compliant with what, what the, the government and the CSA were putting out at the time to ring fence uh, banks from uh, avoiding another recession. So the only area that was making money at that time was risk within banking. Um, so I worked for a regulatory risk recruitment company, which was dealing with Basel II stuff and like quite senior uh, risk uh, directors and things like that within banks. They're doing projects to make sure there's not another recession, essentially. Yeah, interesting. I um, I worked in banking, actually. I worked for an investment bank. I. Uh... I finished like I, I kind of graduated in the recession before you, you know. So then I, I didn't even try. I, I, I said I'm not even going to try to get a job. I just went traveling and just disappeared for, under the radar for two years, and then went all around the world, Asia and Australia and New Zealand and the US, and you know, and turned up. And by the time I got back, the recession had gone. That was my strategy for dealing with it. It was yeah. lucky though because it could have kept going longer, and then I would have been really screwed. At the time, it was a really nice job. I mean, it was a completely different place to where I was working in the accountancy sales firm. Um, you know, these guys treated us well. There was decent working hours. Um, we, we had freedom to, to build our own business and to meet our own clients. Um, there was really senior professionals that I was dealing with. And uh, that, that was really nice to be able to speak to people at a very high level and to place them in jobs. They took us skiing on, on, on work incentives and our Christmas party, you know, involved going bowling, having a posh suit and tie do. Whereas when we were with the the accountancy firm, they didn't care at all. It was it was literally Christmas party was two drinks in the pub, and um, there was yeah, there was no fancy trips or or nights out or anything like that. It was uh, completely the opposite. So I, I did enjoy working in recruitment, and I, I learned from some really good people how to be a, a great recruiter. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I um my first business was a recruitment agency. I started one in Prague called Dunross Recruitment, which is still going, actually. I started it with a really good friend of mine, uh, and it worked out quite well. I ended up selling my share to the manager, who's a Czech woman, and she runs it together with Mike, my friend, So, um, who I'm seeing tomorrow, actually, funnily enough. But it's, it was cool, you know, I, although I, I didn't like the business, you know. I, I liked it because I got a lot of sales experience. Um, it's... You know, I guess if I'd, have, if I'd have done what you did and taken a job in at first, I think that's a good way to do it, you know, because you can figure out, you know, someone else can train you basically while you're getting paid. Like I had to learn about the recruitment industry while starting a company, which is pretty tough. You know? <laughs> but yeah. it's not rocket science, you know, like it's, you can, it took us about a year to figure it out, but we did eventually. Well, that's it. It isn't. And um, like, it, it's all again about the hard work ethic, putting the time and hours into it. Um taking the time and consideration to actually care about the people that you're trying to place into roles. And I learned from really good people. Um, luckily, I wasn't in a kind of KPI-driven, hard sales environment. It was much more of a consultative, knowledgeable, let's go and meet people and, and place them in really high-end roles environment. And the fees were really big. It was very different, from, as I said, from doing the, the, the cold call and accountancy software uh, side of things. It was, it was a big step up. So, 
it was a great learning pad to, to do some high-end consultative stuff. And I guess you get a percentage of you got a percentage of the commission as a as a recruitment agent there. Yeah, again, unfortunately, it was recession. So every agency, the agency that I worked for, had a hundred people before the recession, and then it, it got cut down to four people. Right. So it gives you it wiped out the entire recruitment agency, and I was one of the new guys that uh, just you know had good sales experience, cold calling experience. Uh, I was probably one of the best people out there at the time because most people couldn't even get a job. They took me on as a as a kind of guy that you know would would help them out and build the accounts and stuff so commission wise it wasn't incredible it was it was better than the job I was in previously that you know a few years after that if I'd stayed uh, with them the commission obviously would have risen a lot as the economy grew sure So, so what was next for you then so um, after doing this recruitment malarkey, I, I looked at it and I thought, I can do this myself. And I just thought, you know, I, I, I think I, if I worked for, at home doing the same thing and picking up the phone and trying to make money, I would be able to do this. Didn't seem to me to be that many barriers to entry. Um, didn't like the placement fees were all permanent. So you'd get the money after placing somebody. All I really needed was enough money in the bank to last for three or four months. And the way that I saw it was that if I was in my job and I didn't place somebody for four months, I'd get sacked. So what would be the difference if I did it at home working for myself? I, I would have to go and work back in recruitment. Um, that's the worst case scenario. And, you know, recruiters in demand, it wasn't that hard to get another job after that. So, exactly. And if you're dealing with like professionals, let's say if you're you know, getting, just to guess numbers, like he's getting 15% and you're placing people on £50,000 a year, you know, you can get... You can make seven and a half thousand pounds for one placement, you know, if, if you get if you get the right if you've got the right level. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I, I feel that it was um, a great way to make money. The one thing that you don't realize, especially when you're starting up a recruitment company, is there's another twenty five thousand companies doing this. <laughs> so, exactly, it's got the lot. lowest barrier to entry of any of any business in the world. So it takes real effort to start one up, and I learned that quite quickly. Yeah. Were you just like sending candidates on spec to companies to when you got started then? So when I started, it was um, a bit, it, it was a bit of a weird one. I didn't have much experience in recruitment, in all honesty. I was very lucky to be taught by extremely good people, but I had a, almost a, a year and a half working for other people in recruitment. So in terms of most people that set up a recruitment company, they probably would have got to managerial level or director level and then and then took the dip. But I think for me, it was just a case of I had nothing to lose. Um, and I, I just knew that I, even if I made a few placements a year, I'd be on quite a lot more money than what I was on anyway um, with senior candidates. So um, I I just figured it out and thought, you know, there's, there's the worst case scenario for me is that I could end back up as a recruiter um, yeah. rather than owning my own company. So let's give it a shot. So I used the money that I had from my bar call. And at the time, my flatmate, um, was also a recruiter. So um, I, I set up a recruitment business uh, and he joined in a few months later. Um, together we started to, you know, take uh, on as many jobs as possible. And I think within three months we we made 40 or 50,000 pounds. Right. Wow. Cool. So what was next? Like, this is where we started getting into events, I guess, which is the main thing we're going to talk about. Was, was that what was next? Uh, not quite, but um, so we we started off doing recruitment for salespeople, realized there wasn't much money in it and moved into digital. Then I set up a UX recruitment team for user experience people. Yep. We 
realized that most of the market was in London and not in Manchester. So I moved to London and created a very big recruitment, I say very big recruitment company for the age that I was and the, the, the point of my career, we had 15 people working for us. Wow. Uh, and we're turning over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. We were, we were you know, pretty rich in, in terms of the money that we were making. And I was creating, a, um, you know, uh, jobs for UX people in London. So what happened was I got to about three years into my company and I sat there and I thought, I, I, I kept thinking to myself, like, what would I do with the money once I've sold this company? Or what would I do with the money once I've made this company big? And it, one day it just clicked and I just thought, why don't I just do this now? <laughs> why am I waiting to sell this company? Or why am I waiting to make this much money to do something that I'm really, really, really passionate about? And of course, it built into me was this whole events thing from when I was in Manchester and Lancaster University. And I really loved doing that. I found it, I was really good at it. And it, it was something that I really enjoyed. Whereas recruitment, it was still the, the salesy kind of picking up the phone. It was nice networking with people. I love digital. I love tech. So something I'm highly passionate about. But I, I wasn't passionate about putting people into jobs in tech. Yeah, I was the same. Yeah, I can see that. Just didn't, I'm dyslexic. I didn't like doing all of the, the paperwork that was involved. I like picking up the phone, networking, talking to people, but, you know, reading over CVs, it just wasn't really something that, that uh, it made me feel great. And the bigger the company grew, the more KPIs we had to put in and the more we were telling people, you know, have to make this much money. It was all about money. And I just kept thinking, oh, when I get enough money, I'll go and do this. Uh, this is what I'm really passionate about. This is what I was made to do. So one day I just, I went skiing and uh, it's the first holiday I had in three years. And I just looked at the mountain and I remember thinking, I just want to do what I want to, what I'm really passionate about. It doesn't matter how much money I'm making, I'm not happy. So uh, I, I decided to go back to my ex-business partner and say, I want to be out of the business and, and left the business. Right. And did you get um, did you get any kind of payoff, or did you just walk away and say, "Look, I'm just walking away. I want to do my own thing." We it was very messy. Um, right, it happens sometimes. I mean, I I think I was I kind of tell my story, and I, when I talked to other people, I realized how lucky I was that we just stayed friends, and I made a bit of money out of it, and we 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 shook hands and walked away. I think that's the exception, you know, when I talk to more people realistically. Yeah, we I basically in the end got got quite complicated and I took um, a certain amount of money that we had in the bank but it was nowhere near the worth of the company it was nowhere near it, it was nothing it was barely enough to you know start up another business but it was enough to probably keep me going for you know six months afterwards basically yeah. so it was it was yeah it was a bit of a, a difficult one because of uh, you know being through a lot with it and but I, I made that decision I decided that it wasn't all about money for me and you know I had to deal with those consequences that I'm going to walk away from something that would make me millions of pounds and and into something that I had no idea um what what it was what was going to happen with it so you had no idea what kind of events you were going to run or anything? You just went left and thought you'd figure it out? Um, kind of, yeah. I mean, I had an idea, but um, it, it, the ideas I had were quite a lot of ideas rather than just one. So I had yeah. ideas doing speed dating events. I had ideas for doing boat parties. I had ideas of doing these tech networking events. I had ideas for all these different things. And I thought the best way of doing it is just to go out there and try 
different aspects and see what you know uh, would suit me and um, where I could make the most money and where, where where I could basically do the things that I really enjoyed doing. Definitely. And, and what, so, what, what did you do first? It was this was a company Twisted Lemon you started? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So with the, the the money that I had left over from the recruitment sale of shares, um, there was enough money there for me to start up Twisted Lemon. And what happened was uh, I was massively I, I was trying to connect the dots of everything I've done in the past, and I thought staff retention is a massive thing. Um, recruitment's one thing, but not many people work on 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 their staff. So I set up an events company that did staff retention events. Um, Essentially, you could bring in anything you wanted into your office. Uh, you could bring in massages, you could bring in cocktail bars, barbers, wet shave artists, molecule cocktail classes, you name it, we did it. Um, and it was really popular, um, really, really, really popular. Um, at the same time, I set up a few other smaller events, and one of them was using my UX network that I had from Blue um, Digital, the recruitment company I worked for. Um, and... I used that that network um, just to create something that I saw was missing in the market, which was a, a networking event for UX people that was run professionally and independently. Right. Um, so I started that, and I, I did both of them at once. Um, Twisted Lemon was my main events company. Um, the uh, the the UX Crunch, as we call it now. Uh, was a meetup that made a bit of side money, but also kept me connected with all the guys I met in recruitment and kept my network going. And it was fun, and it was it was kind of like a hobby that made a bit of money, and also did really good things for the community. Um, so it was it was killing three birds with one stone, if you like. Um, so the, to cut a long story short, because uh, it's quite a long story, with Twisted Lemon, it was really successful. It we had. All the biggest companies like Booking.com, everybody decided to use us. But the manual labor involved in doing these events was ridiculous. And the amount of equipment... This, this was just you, by the way. You were, were you doing everything? You were doing the sales? You were running the events? We managed to get up to four members of staff with it. Um, we had a, a, a salesperson, an events coordinator, and a kind of general admin uh, office sort of person. And um, we had a big office and what was happening essentially is we were selling these things for like uh, a couple of grand a piece or a grand or 500 quid. Um, and because these companies would go out and try and find the cheapest thing all the time, they were always knocking us down on price. So we did deals of Arcadia where we did a cocktail bar for 5,000 people for the, the World Cup. And, you know, they, they would pay us like two pound per person or something, you know? So we'd, we'd have to try and get all the equipment, all the staff, everything um, to have free drinks for two pound a person. It costs 30p a drink, so you're making a pound per person, you yeah. know, and it's very tight, hard margins. Um, and what happened was the UX crunch, which I was running on the side, continued to grow because of everybody really loved the content and they were really enjoying the events. We were putting some of the knowledge from Twisted Lemon into making good drinks and making it a really comfortable, lovely event. And we were also working with some of the companies from Twisted Lemon and from other places, which meant that essentially, you know, we were getting um, events in, in some of the biggest companies in the UK to talk about UX and about uh, user experience design and uh, different different uh, elements that we were we were concentrating on. We did some creative ones and VR and AR ones as well, all things that I, I'm very interested in personally. 
And how did you, so, how were you getting people to come to the UX events? Were you charging attendees, or were you, did you have sponsors, or did the venues pay? Like how you said you were making a bit of money. How how were you monetizing this in, in the early days? Well, in the early days, with the good thing that I did, and it's a tip to anyone else out there starting an event, is I charge for it. Yeah, and it's always the best way if you can get away with it because if people don't come to free events, number one, <laughs> 50% of people won't even show up. Exactly. You're so right. And, um, you know, our dropout rate on any event is zero, literally zero, because yeah. we know that when you charge for an event, we charge anywhere, even now when we're running these events, it's still happening. We charge anywhere from sort of £10 to £15 per head. That goes back into the event. It goes into pizza and drinks and, if not, into the staff that are sitting there all week running them. What it does is you get the right sort of people coming, people that are invested in their education, people that care about um, learning and and finding the right event and the right content. And those people tend to be high-end practitioners that are in the industry. When when you're doing events for free, you'll just end up with a lot of recruitment companies coming, life coaches, you name it. Anybody will come for a free with business. A lot of business cards being handed out. So mm. yeah, our business model was quite smart because we were charging people to go to meetups, and there, at the time in London there was no UX meetups. There was uh, there was a couple of industry organisations such as UXPA and Interaction Design, but we were the only UX meetup out there. It is before meetup becomes such a big thing, really. Yeah. Um, and I, so we, we were the first one, and we're also the first one to charge. So all of a sudden, everyone's like, which meetup should I go to out of the three? You know, the, the one that's 15 quid or the one that's free. And everybody, of course, chose the 15, 20, yeah, 10. Yeah, yeah. Felt that it was a better event. It was a better use of their time. So we built up a huge network. And then what happened was, as time went on, I looked at Twisted Lemon and it was, we were doing these events, it was costing us quite a lot of money and we had all these staff and we had to, to scale it up would have been very difficult. And I had to make a horrible choice, but um, it got to the point where I completely ran out of money and I had nothing. Um, right. And, and I, I had a choice. It was, um, it was quite an easy choice, but it was to keep Twisted Lemon and, and just try and make it work or, or let go of it and sell all the equipment and sell all of the stuff and let go of all the staff. So, um, and, and focus more on this side business that I had, which was making good money, had lots of people come in and, um, it just wasn't, I, at the time it didn't feel as sexy as Twisted Lemon, you know, um, doing meetups, you know, uh, I didn't want to be a professional meetup guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to run the, the Uber of staff retention and, yeah. uh, you know, I was had these big ambitions. So, I had to just like look at it and go, look, the overheads to run these meetups are really low and the income on them is really quite high. It's sure. enough to pay my wage. Um, whereas these events I'm doing with Twisted Lemon are costing more than it, it, it takes to run them most of the time. The margins are quite tight and we really need a lot of people and a lot of space and a lot of warehouse and a lot of equipment to make it all work and we just don't have those funds. So. I decided, uh, and it was a really hard decision, but I decided to fold the whole Twisted Lemon thing in, even though we were work, working with Booking.com, with Arcadia, all the biggest brands yep. in the UK. And I even had like uh, investors ready to invest in it. And, you know, um, I was ready to take it really big. And I just, I went and met investors and they said, like, they, I had, they were two separate companies and they said, what's the other company you do? And I showed them and they went, that's the one I want to invest in, low overheads, making loads of money, you know, yeah, getting yeah. Them following. And it just clicked and I was like, it's really hard to do, but I let go of Twisted Lemon and 
um, I just put all my focus into tech networking events um, and as a full-time job. And one of the guys that was running Twisted Lemon with me, the sales guy, he, he, he was running a lot of these networking events for me whilst I was focused on it. Both of us came together and we, we both started working predominantly on the, the networking side of things. Just to step in here quickly to mention our sponsor, EventsFrame, a project I'm co-founder of, and I want to mention our integrations, which we believe are the best available. Firstly, payment integrations. You can connect any payment gateway, such as Stripe, PayPal, Braintree, or even bank account or take cash. You can connect everything to EventsFrame. We also have the best marketing integrations out there with every email marketing system, including MailChimp, Zapier, Infusionsoft, Aweber, Drip, and we've got deep integrations with all the social media platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. We've got thousands of events live on EventsFrame right now, ranging from small community meetups to huge trade shows and conferences. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com. Now, back to the interview. So I'm curious, in these early days for your tech networking events, so, so, so this guy came on as a partner, I guess, the two of you working together. Um, yeah, so he, like, I gave him a small amount of equity in the company, um, promised him that, you know, the, co- the company would grow and uh, one day it would be worth a lot of money. And, um, you know, he stuck for it. And, and um, he, he was also an ex-recruiter that came to the events. So cool. I recruited him through, through coming to the UX crunch. And uh, he was very sales focused, but also understood UX really well and understood everybody in the industry. So um, kind of accidentally, there's two really top recruiters that knew everybody in the industry and were excellent at headhunting and sales, putting together these events for people, using the skills that we had. Um, I think a lot of people looked at us and went, you're not a UXer, you don't know what you're doing, you know, Um, why are you doing these events? But actually, I don't think there's anybody more suitable to run an event than a headhunter who can find the best speakers in the world and best, you know, people um, to yeah. speak at the events and then also to sell the sponsorships and to sell the concept to people. So that's what we did. We, we both focused on that and decided to create a conference called UX Live. So just, um, just sorry, just quickly, just to stick on the, the meetup still. Um, how I'm curious. So obviously, you had the you had the lists. You had the the UX list from your time as a recruiter. How else were you promoting? Obviously, you, you were emailing these people directly, but what, what other tools were you using to get people to the meetups in the early days when you got started? So I did use, at the time, GDPR wasn't a thing. Um, yeah. so I did use my mailing list from recruitment. Yeah. And the first ever meetup I did got 17 people, 17. Um, bearing in mind, I took my whole recruitment database, which was tens of thousands of people yeah. from like... 17 people showed up and paid yeah and it was a big shock um because i thought at least 100 people would turn up um it wasn't a very good event either um in all honesty you know we had no pizza we had no free drinks yeah yeah 10 people to stand in a bomber nightclub in revolutions <laughs> a dj microphone uh, and a projector screen people standing up it it wasn't you know how it was supposed to be but from there we built it up and like learn from the mistakes, listen to the feedback. People said, we want pizza. We thought, right, we'll buy pizza. We want this, we want that. And we just started really listening to it. And as Twisted Lemon was growing, I'm sorry, not growing, as Twisted Lemon was happening at the same time, yeah. we 
progressed from the feedback and built the community bigger. In the first year, I think we had going to our meetups, I think we had about 500 people turn up to meetups in the first year. But I'm curious, how, how did you, how, how you, how did you go from the 17 to the 500? Like how, how, like you have the list, but obviously that only got you a few. How, what other tools were you using to promote? Were you, were you doing like social media stuff or was it, were you asking people to promote it to their network? I'm curious, because it's always, it's always hard to build in the early days and I'm curious to find out how you did it. Yeah, people ask what the magic thing is. So the magic thing is is quite simple. You have to charge for your event um, because people always want to go to something. We use meetup.com um, and meetup.com, you know, it, it was hard to build a, a following on that, but it's just consistency yeah, and word of mouth. So the key is consistency. And what you see with a lot of people is that they do meetups, but then they just can't be bothered to carry them on after three or four meetups because they didn't get the results they expected. It took me a year to get anywhere near 100 people coming to a meetup. Um, And I had to do speed networking events. I had to do all sorts of crazy things just to get people engaged and get them coming down. The, what, um, what else were you doing? Cause I'm, that's what I'm really interested in. Obviously, you know, you meetup.com gets a few people. Were you, yeah. were you like calling around people to get them to come? Like what, what kind of ways were you doing to actually get people to come? Um, so I would use my LinkedIn status yeah. um, quite often to promote the events and going on LinkedIn and messaging people. I find LinkedIn a really good tool because yeah. I'm an recruiter. I guess that, that was uh, a big thing for me. Sure. Uh, had a big LinkedIn network, messaging and emailing, putting it on Eventbrite and sites that you know do have the traffic that people um, look into. Um, uh, but the most important thing was Meetup.com for yeah. me, mailing lists and, uh, as I said, consistency. People yeah, really yeah. value word of mouth. People don't realise that that um, most most people that come to events is through word of mouth. You've got to get people in get them sit down at your event, but you need time. It is all about time and consistency. So you need to put on lots and lots and lots and lots of events and you need the word of mouth to go out there because when people go to work the next day, they tell all their colleagues that they went to this great event where they had pizza and they learned all about um, some really interesting subject that they were interested in. The content is obviously king. So we had to find the best speakers for us ourselves, we don't create the content, but we had we did have to find the right people to speak and researching and finding the very, 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 very best speakers in London was a big part of that. So as, I think the difference between us and other meetups and why we've been so successful is that we did it as a full-time job. We did yeah. it consistently and we worked really hard on it. We, we listened to everyone's feedback and we kept going and kept going through all the hard times. I've seen so many new meetups starting in London copying what we're doing, and, and they, they literally do copy. They go to the same venues, they try and take the same speakers, and it flops after three or four months. And the reason why is, one, they don't charge for it, so uh, you get a load of crap people going to it, basically. And if those people go into it, who wants to network with a load of people that aren't in the industry yeah. and sold to by a load of recruiters and life coaches? Um they want to be with the best people. They want to be with the A players of the industry for the networking purposes. And secondly, you know, if it takes a lot of time to make these things. Um, we have, even now today, we have a full-time member of staff that just does meetups. That's his job full-time. There's nothing else in his job. He sits and creates meetups uh, as a full-time job. And he's working solidly throughout the week, nonstop, to create meetups. And um, it just takes a lot of time to do it properly. And do you curate, like, like, for example, if a recruiter applies, do you say, like, I'm really sorry, but it's only for UX professionals? Yes. Uh, well, no. 
in the conferences we do, but with the meetups, we were quite open about it. We charge people to come, so it sieves out all the free recruiters that are coming. And yep. the ones, the recruiters that are willing to pay ten or fifteen quid out of their pocket to come, tend to be quite good recruiters yep. in our in our experience. So we don't limit them. In fact, we encourage them a little. But we don't actively encourage them. But we 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 when we're there at the event, we try and make them feel welcome yep. because they're the guys that are on the phone all day telling everybody how great this event was that they went last Definitely. night. They're spreading the word of mouth far more than anyone else. So, you know, you want to keep them close to you. We don't want it to be a sales-focused event. I find in general we get about 2 3% recruiters and, you know, people that aren't UX people. It's a good point. Like a good recruiter, like they're desperate because your recruiters are always a bit like, because, you know, I used to be an SAP consultant. I worked with a lot of recruiters and they're always a bit paranoid that they don't know enough about the tech. So if they can impress the UX guys that they know about a cool meetup, they'll, they'll be desperate to tell them about it, you know, to give them some good information. It's such an important thing, and then I genuinely believe that word of mouth is the biggest driver, and not many people work on word of mouth. And it's true. like creating a really good event and making people talk about it the next day is the key to, to making you know a high growth company in, in this industry. Definitely. So you've run a bunch of meetups, and then you decided to, to do a, a conference or a summit, like to capitalize on it and do a big event and uh, make some money. Yeah, such a big leap. So we we decided to do a conference called UX Live. It was great. At this point, we had thousands and thousands of people coming to our meetups, focused all of our energy and attention into it. We were running three or four meetups uh, a month in London, um, which was great. Um, we looked at our database and we had tens of thousands of people on it. We had a great reputation for what we did. We had people willing to sponsor us, people willing to speak. So we thought we'd put on a conference, but it was extremely scary because we've never done it before had no idea what to expect and it wasn't it wasn't as easy as as we thought it would be yeah it never is <laughs> so uh yeah what happened was we we started launching it and we signed up a venue we got great payment terms somehow uh we persuaded them that we would be able to pay them after the event uh which is the first big thing um, it's very, very hard to get that out of anybody, even now to this day. But somehow these guys have some trust in us and they allowed us to do it. And did they, like, because obviously I always say to people it's very risky to, to use any kind of hotel or conference venue for your first event. Uh, but did, did they make you guarantee a minimum or did you say, look, if we get no one, we pay you nothing? It was 100 people minimum for right. our first one. Um, so, yeah, it, it is really risky. Um the thing is, is that there's so many not very good conferences out there that do use church halls and use yeah. you know, these things. And again, the A players, where are they going to go? Even if, if you've got 100 people and they're all, you know, top 10 percent of the industry, that's where everybody wants to go. That's where the word of mouth, the guys that are talking about it. So we 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 essentially took the biggest risk of my life and it was the most stressful thing I ever did. Um, but we signed up paid speakers. We signed up people from all over the globe to come over for this conference. We signed up a venue. We had no money whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, we were almost penniless. We were struggling to pay our wages. And um, by putting all of this together, we knew that we had a, we, but at this point, bear in mind, we've had two and a half years of meetups behind our yeah. backs had quite a big name. We've done meetups with BBC and Netta Porter and some very big brands. Uh, everybody knew us. And so we set up our conference and nobody bought any tickets <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, at first. Um, so we waited and we were, we were trying to sell the tickets and 
it's a new conference and you know we had a great lineup um we, we had quite a budget website because of uh we didn't have much budget yeah and um what happened was eventually like getting closer to it people started buying tickets um oh, yeah people, that's amazing how late most people leave it but it's, it's tough to deal with and I remember two weeks before the event, I said, if we don't sell, I think it was 10,000 or more pounds of the tickets, we're bankrupt. Um, so it was right to the wire. And it was like the last day, even on the day of the conference, because it was a two-day conference, people were buying tickets for the next day. We finished the conference. It had the best speakers. It had great content. It was brilliant structured. The venue was beautiful. The food was great. The feedback was five-star everybody rated it as one of the best conferences they've been to. Um, we differentiated ourselves in the fact that we have, like you could choose your own day. So you could go to a workshop, then you could go to one of the rooms. We had a panel stage where there was live discussions. It was kind of like a little mini festival, but there was only uh, 150 people there per day. But they were, you know, interacting with four, I think it was four stages or four different rooms, cool. uh, three workshops and uh, a panel stage and a main stage. It did increase our cost dramatically because we had to pay for all of these speakers to come in and do it and uh, all of the extra rooms. Um, yeah. But we, yeah, we, we just uh, we took a massive gamble with it and tried to do the best conference we could, we could possibly do. Cool. Well, it paid off. I've got a few questions about the conference. So first of all, were you, did you pay your speakers the first time or did you do the manage to negotiate most of them for free or just some expenses at the worst case because it was your first event? Well, my, at first, we, we paid our headline speakers. So the big draws, the big guys, we pay. Um, the rest of them we put into nice accommodation. In fact, it wasn't nice accommodation. That was one of the mistakes we made. But well, you, you know, it was. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of free star stuff, and I learned from that. You have to give speakers much better accommodation. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, and, and we pay for their flights and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, the, the amount of money that was totally spent, you know, it was thousands of pounds. It wasn't a considerable amount, but, um, yeah, I, I, what I've learned as time goes on is it's not good to pay speakers. I found that, and this isn't us trying to be cheap, it's complete opposite because our, our, our ethos is to spend as much money as we can to make the best conference. But um, I found that paid speakers don't tend to, um, they tend to be very entertaining, but they don't tend to be very passionate about the actual subject they're talking that, about. That's a really good point. I've, I found that a lot. You know, my, you know, my main business at apps events, we were on Google education conferences for schools, mostly school audiences. And, and it's, you know, you you can get, I mean, I've had a couple of like idiots kind of basically, you know, big, big names, paid them a lot of money, very kind of, you know, a little bit arrogant. And they don't, you know, they don't, they don't network as well with the community. And then when you get the, the practitioners, often, you know, they don't have to have something because if you've been to a few conferences, you've heard like a load of motivational speeches and you don't need to keep hearing it. It's almost better to have someone that comes in and tells you like, here's, here's five things you can use in your job next week, like concrete things, do this, do, and you know, and, it, and you can be a not as amazing presenter and people still love it. I, I found that time and time again with my events. The same, yeah. It's just so what we realized is we were paying these speakers. And I have to say, every time I've gone to my own conference and listened to these speakers, they have been the most entertaining. But only they're so entertaining because they have done that talk 15 times before at different conferences. And they've tweaked it and they've played with it and they know that they can get, you know, um, three, four, five, six thousand pounds every time they do a 30 minute talk at each conference. Um, yeah. So it's a perfected product. 
and it is entertaining. But the take homes that I found that headline speakers tend to be quite confrontational, tend to be quite um, they 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 disrupted if you like. They're trying to provoke emotion all the time, and um, I found that when you actually dissect what they actually talked about, there wasn't much substance to it. It was just very yeah. theatrical and very, um, you know, uh, inspiring, motivational maybe. But is that what you really want from an educational conference? Do you really want to be inspired about um, how to ethically, you know, work somewhere or how to, um, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit, you know, cross between, but I do, the headline speakers we had were fantastic. They were the best rated speakers, don't get me wrong. I just, when I, when I, when I look at it, I don't think you get as many good take-homes. And I think for the money that you spend on them, you could have a lot more um, better speakers from top companies, put them in a beautiful hotel with a, you know, a lovely flight across from America or from wherever and treat them really well. Um, and, and you could have you know, a, a much better uh, passionate person who's there to talk about the industry they love rather Definitely. than some of the Cool. That's really interesting. Another question about how you got people to this event. Like, obviously, you talked about for your meetups, you were doing LinkedIn networking and direct messaging people on LinkedIn. I, mean, I guess adding them as a contact, direct messaging. Were you actually doing, you know, the old school calling, calling people up and calling around the list? Because uh, I'm curious. Like, um, I see a lot of, um, you know, these uh, big event producers like Marcus Evans and people. They do a lot of that. And uh, it, it, uh, in my my kind of industry education for, for schools, it doesn't work like that. But I'm curious, does does that work in in your area? Like, are you did you end up calling people to get them to come? You have to take massive action in order to sell out a conference. Yep. It's incredibly difficult. Every time I see someone setting up a new conference, I just feel sorry for them. Yeah. Um, I genuinely feel like I don't think they realise what they're getting into. And yeah. um, now we've had the experience of doing it a few times. Um, like we're very comfortable with doing it, and we know what works and what doesn't. But that first time was incredibly hard, and you have to you have to message every single person you know. You have to speak as many people on the phone as possible. Yeah. You have to put like absolutely everything you've got, every last penny you've got into marketing, everything you've got into it. Um, it it was a case of like for us, we were working like fifteen hour days, you know, um, yeah. trying to get to come just trying to get people to come and um it, it was really difficult um like because if you haven't got a name or a brand and no one's been to your conference the year before it, it's tough like nobody wants to go to that they want to go to the one that everybody's talking about the one that everybody Definitely. knows about. so um all i can say is the the actions have to be massive um to sell it out um is there any particular way of doing it better than any others I, d I think LinkedIn and messaging people directly and letting them know about the conference is a really big one in our industry. Like you said, not many people on the phone. We were very fortunate that we had over, uh, so far our company, um, I worked it out recently, we've had over 200 speakers alone uh, speak at our events. Yeah. So we, we had massive meetup groups that we could message out. We could put it on Meetup. We could uh, put it uh, through all of our... We had a massive mailing list full of people that had paid and been to our events before. We sure. had thousands and thousands of people on it. But even with all of that, you're looking at selling like 25, 30, 40, 50 tickets through that yeah. means. Yeah. You've, got, you've, got, you've got to really push on every single um, area. It's no one 
solution to it. It's sure. like you have to go on everything. So do you, do you think the phone still works? Like he hasn't gone away? Like you, you still get people that way just by calling them up and, and, you know, even if they don't want to come, they'll maybe recommend someone else? I think that uh, phone calling is, yeah, I don't. I think it's done and dusted personally, but really? I think that phone calling people that you know warm is fine. Yeah. Um, but phone cold calling people... I don't know, like, you know, as we scale and grow, I probably will get people in there, phone people up, but I think it would always be on a warm basis that they've had a conversation on LinkedIn before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some sort of met them at an event or something, or they've spoke. And because we've got quite a large database and everyone knows us, I don't, I think all of our leads would be warm anyway. Everybody already pretty much knows us, but cold so, calling people like the blues a little bit irritating, you it's know? It's funny how quick it's changed, isn't it? Because, like, I reckon, I'm trying to think, I think five years ago, something like that, I would get cold calls all the time. And it, it didn't even bother me. As long as the guy was cool, I'd say, look, you know, I'll say, sorry, it's not for me. If they got pushy, I'd look, I'd like, come on. But it didn't bother me. It was just part of business. You would just get cold calls every, every day, you know, from di- all different kinds of things, recruiters, people, some, some events, financial advisors, like everything. Now, I don't get any cold calls. Like, you're uh, right. It's just, it's, the, it's changed, like, in, 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 in a few years, you know. It's com- and now it seems rude if someone calls you up cold, you know. I, I find it quite desperate. Um, that's my thing. And, you know, when you're running a big event like ours, we're supposed to be a, you know, a, a really high-class, great event for A players in the industry. You know, people phoning you up, trying to sell you tickets isn't great. What we do do is we message everybody and let them know about it and say, look, we're, you're in my network. I'll offer you a, a discount or I'll offer you something, you know, um, in order to get them uh, enticed to come. But again, even with discounts, we're quite stingy with them. It's like 10% or something quite small because we don't want to devalue the event and come across desperate. Definitely. And when you say messaging, you mean LinkedIn, you're messaging them on, on LinkedIn, you've added them as a connection and you're messaging them on LinkedIn. That's right, yeah. yeah. So just going through the whole network and messaging them one by one and letting them know about it, people that are relevant and people that you know. Um, luckily, as I said, for us, we do so many events that everyone knows us. They've been to our events. We've had this year alone, um, we've had uh, 5,000 people attend events. So um, it's it's a big chunk of the industry already know us. And if they don't know us, they've, they've they're, they're, you know, uh, heard of us for sure. So sure. it's, um, yeah, it is, it is the way... But um, I guess that's probably the next stage of the journey is uh, to talk about is that once we set up US Live, we then set up another conference called FinTech Design Summit. And just just to point out, UX Live was a success in terms of com- uh, content, um, a failure in terms of making profits. We had to take a loan out afterwards to survive because right, right. it drained so much money and time yeah. and I remember being at the speaker's dinner and everybody was like, Luke, such a great, they were buzzing from how great the conference was. And I was sat there with my hands and my head just going, I don't know how I'm going to get through Christmas. Like, I don't know how I'm going to survive, you know? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. We, we still... but, but did you think, did you know you wanted to continue or did you think maybe you would just go back to doing your, you know, your, your um, in-office events? Oh, no, definitely continue because, you know, you put so much time and investment into getting a great conference out there. The definitely. last thing you want is to then waste that opportunity. You know next year it's going to double up or get bigger. Exactly. You're onto something. So it's just about trying to find the money from every credit card you've got, every everything you've got to keep going for that next year to, until you get to the next conference. Um, but what happened to us is that because it was such a good conference and it was such a good content people were willing to sponsor us after the event right and you know did, they were, did, they did were, you get any sponsors like corporate sponsors for the, for the event oh yeah at every event we've got lots of sponsors yeah. um 
but again, you know, we do a lot of these community events, so sure. they all our events. It was quite easy for us to find sponsors and partners. Um, so yes, there, there is a, a lot of sponsorship involved, but a majority of the money does come through ticket sales. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, you know, in terms of having a bit of extra cash flow and getting, you know, being able to pay for these speakers uh, and uh, their flights and things that you need to pay in advance of wages, even. Uh, sponsors are key because they're the first people that are going to step up and go, yeah, we want to support you, especially if you give them a good deal on the package that they had the, the year before. Um, Definitely. So, so that works. And we did we did a, something called, we, as we were doing the community events, we created a fintech community event. It was so popular. It had three or 400 people turn up to it. By this point, our events were, our community events, we're getting 250, 300 people per event. Uh, they're selling out. Uh, we were trying to do four events a month. We're doing them in Manchester. We're doing them everywhere. Um, and so it, it was getting really busy for us in general when everything we were doing, our word of mouth was spreading. Everybody knew that our events were good. So we set up a FinTech Design Summit on the basis that we did this meetup that had 300 people turn up to it about the design of FinTech. And yeah. uh, we just thought, we've got to make a conference. We've got to be first to market as quickly as possible. Plus, we need to make money. So, like, we need to do something. So, we put it on, and that was a roaring success. We made lots of profit. We had charged more for the tickets. We learned from a lot of the mistakes we made on the first conference, uh, kept the cost low, your margins high, created something the industry really wanted. The feedback came back amazingly great. Um, and that was the start of the company really because at that point we had money to invest in new staff and new conferences and new websites um and um you know that takes us back to the sort of uh, last year april um and within within the last year we've now gone on to have our second ux live um after the fintech and that was absolutely amazing we quadrupled numbers so we had um I think it's quadruple. No, uh, we did three. No, we, we tripled numbers in, in terms of attendance. Um, so we tripled numbers. Uh, in terms of revenue, we more than quadrupled it. And um, the the name became big. Uh, everybody wanted to be at our conference. It's a cool conference. We were offering things no one else was offering. Massages. We're offering a cocktail bar at the end of it. Free drinks. I, I tell anyone running a conference, you need a free drinks party because people love it. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. But more importantly, we're getting the best venue. So we just picked the very, very, very top end venue. And, um, you know, uh, it was it was an amazing venue. We used uh, the Crystal and XL. It was very, very expensive. And uh, but people loved it. And, you know, they came along and they had a great experience. And they we were able to charge decent money for the tickets. We paid a lot of money on speakers more than 50% of the income of the event went back into the event. Cool. And the income was very large for this one um, compared to the, the first year. And, you know, from, from having those two really successful events now, we're able to launch uh, the FinTech Design Summit 2, which is almost nearly sold out. Um, then we're launching an e-commerce design summit, which is very much like FinTech Design Summit, but for e-commerce people. We're launching a behavior and design conference called the Bad Conference. Um, then we've got UX Live Free, um, which I'm hoping if it quadruples again, it's going to be more than a thousand people going to it. Um, so, uh, you know, teams doing well. Uh, the events that we're doing for meetups, we've just launched them in Amsterdam and Manchester, and the community's growing, and we're just about to launch our site. So it's really snowballed off the back of 
just sticking to our guns, providing really, really good content, spend not cutting corners on costs. And, you know, we yeah, have, yeah. To, have to be tight when it comes to events on every single aspect. But things like massages, they're, they're expensive to give everyone a massage, but it makes the event uh, like so, a big thing. It, it, everybody gets a massage. It changes their whole experience of the event. Yeah, um, just silly little things like that. The goodie bags, um, you know, the having decent lanyards. Um, so you know, I, I do think it's advisable to keep costs low, uh, not to spend probably too much on speaker fees, uh, but to spend a lot of time researching who the very, very best people in the industry are, and uh, to spend a lot of time figuring out what the best subjects are. Cool. And, um, it's something's it's a bit of a seesaw. Something's got a dip. Like you, you either spend loads of money on speaker fees, or you spend loads of money on the venue, or you spend loads of money. You, some, something along the line, you've got to try and dip a little bit. Um, and I think as you get larger, like you said, then you can go back to your church hall, and um, then you can do it up. And you can, you know, instead of doing a day delegate rate, you can go into a church, or not, I say a church hall, but like yeah, a Yeah, like a free or cheap venue, yeah, I know what you mean. Co-working yeah. space, there's a lot of options. Yeah. Yeah. You're cool. own in and you're own food in, but you, you really need to have big numbers. You need to have like seven, eight hundred people to do that kind of thing, in my opinion. And so... And how, how many meetups are you running a year now? We do about 50 a year at the moment. Oh, cool. And I'm curious, like we talked at the beginning, you're working in WeWork, because I'm always, it's, you know... I mean, apps events, we, we do like about 300 events a year, but a bit more, but I think 320 maybe in 2018. And we have a team of 10, but we're all remote, which is kind of the way I like it. You know, I was kind of from that background of being nomadic and, you know, our team are all over the place. You know, we have people in, uh, in the UK, US, here in Czech Republic, uh, Philippines, Thailand, uh, probably missed somewhere, Peru, got a team member in Peru. And um, mm. I like that, you know, but I always think, should I get an office? You know, should I have an office? Is it more efficient to have people there? I can listen to what they're saying, you know, can give them advice. I don't know. Where, where, where do you stand on that? I work from home. When we started this business, we started from home. Um, because of Twisted Lemon sucked up so much money and I had nothing left, I had to get rid of the office, sell all the equipment and go back to working from home. And I did that for six months with my colleague. Um, and I found it really depressing, uh, personally. I know a lot of people love working from home, but I found it quite lonely. I found it um, not very motivating, you know, getting up and walking into the next room and doing work. I didn't feel like it's a place for a high growth business. It's probably great for people that have children and, you know, there's lots of benefits. Oh, no, it's, it's the opposite. I've got a young child. That's a but interestingly, like, I, I don't do either. I have an office, but it's just for me, you know, and I, I've optimized, I should send you pictures. I've optimized this. I've got, I've got the whole wall is whiteboards on two sides. I've got standing desk, sitting desk, meeting room. I've got my chill out room with my guitars. Like, this is my, like, man cave, you know, but I get so much work done here, you know, I, I love it. And I, that's kind of my half, halfway house, you know, I have meetings here sometime, but 90% of the time, it's just me. I think it's very different for different people. Yeah. And I've got people that I work with in my team now work better from home. Um, I still ask them to come to the office because I believe like having a buzz and like having that, that office buzz does give the extra energy to everybody. Yeah. But there are a lot of distractions in an office. So like our marketing manager has a lot of administrative sort of um, copy to do uh, all the time and when you've got four people around you talking on the phones and stuff it can be very distracting so you know certain people work from home quite a lot for us and they take different days to work from home to get certain processes done 
Uh, I believe flex flexibility is, you know, the key. But um, I also feel that for some people, working from home isn't actually that nice. And um, I've seen a lot of stuff on LinkedIn saying like working from home is so great. For me personally, I found it quite. I, I'm I'm a very optimistic guy. I don't, you know, suffer from. Luckily, touch wood, uh, I don't suffer from any mental health issues. But I found it quite depressing working from home. I found yeah. it. Uh, I wasn't very happy. I was. Um, sort of I felt like it was Groundhog Day getting up every day walking into the other room and sitting down doing work and then you know finish work I, I, I maybe it's because I'm a workaholic and I like working all the time yeah. I couldn't really separate work from home and uh, where I go to an office I can work and then when I come home I can be at home and, and you know do my home stuff so I think it's different strokes for different folks really you know like some people love it some people don't but um having an office for me is personally is, is a really good thing. Um, and I think having an office is, is good for business in general. Yeah. Well, look, Luke, great to talk to you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for your time. And I think it was a really cool chat. So all the best with the business and let's, um, maybe have a catch up interview in a year and we'll see how things are gone. Thanks so much. It's great speaking to you, Dan. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? Events Frame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com.